I think we've probably got just about the class size we're going to have today. Um, Friday, the morning, and a strike. Never good factors for attendance. Um, but we'll get started here. So I'm recording now. And it looks like today the clicker, either somebody took it or it's missing or they replaced it, but the clicker, the slide changer thing is, uh, is missing. So I'll be standing over here most of the time today to change the slides. But no matter, that will not stop us from going on. Uh, today, we're just going to do a review as usual of what we covered last time, quick review of bioluminescence, and a review of the natural, the more natural, certainly not the green fluorescent proteins, color in animals. So we're kind of, you can see what we're doing here. Biologically, we're going along. We did color in plants, color in leaves, specifically how colors change in the fall. And now we've talked about colors in marine organisms and colors in animals. And today we're going to extend that to an, uh, its natural sort of component with color in, in um, flowers, basically. An interesting part of color in flowers is understanding how flowers basically co-evolved with the organisms that pollinate them. So things like bees and hummingbirds and other birds. So we'll be talking a little bit about that and also talking about the part that genetics plays with respect to color. In this regard, we'll get some basics of genetics, of Mendelian genetics, which is Gregor Mendel, who is the founder of genetics. Uh, talk about some genetics with respect to eye color and uh, sort of animal coloration, and end up with the genetic color in cats. Before we jump right in, though, a uh, couple of announcements. The drop date, uh, Senate has voted it voted actually two days ago to extend the drop date for your winter courses. So the drop date was supposed to be today, would be the last day that you could drop the course without getting a grade, so it would be completely removed from your transcript. Uh, because the strike is happening, that deadline date will be extended. Senate has not yet stated what the date will be, but it'll probably be sometime, probably be extended by about, my guess would be by about two weeks or so. So you can um, at least have some peace of mind. You, you don't have to drop the course right away. And in the meantime, some good news is uh, a couple of your TAs have decided that they would like to continue marking and they would like to continue working. That is an option that QP gives them. So uh, the TAs will be returning to work and will be helping me mark your, uh, your essay, assignment two essay. So you can expect those grades shortly um, with those of you who submitted the assignment too early, I know I was going to try and get you those, I, I am going to get you those date, those marks back before the deadline date, but now that it's extended, we have a little bit more time to go through it a little bit more thoroughly. So your marks, keep watch for your marks. I will post an announcement when any marks are posted on Moodle, but they will be marked very shortly. One attendance, uh, one piece of, of news as well. So with this, with the whole strike confusion and disruption, um, a lot of you are concerned, understandably, uh, and those who are not here especially, about their participation mark with iClicker. 
So my feeling is what I think would be fair to everybody involved would be to make the eye clicker, instead of having you answer 80% of all questions throughout the course, um, to give you your 5% participation mark, I'm changing that, reducing that to 70%. So as long as you answer 70% of questions during the course, you will get that 5% mark. Um, for those people who are not attending classes, they will be able to at least have this 10% reduction, and that should solve the problem of not being here. Um, and for you who are attending classes, you also have the ability to, um, if you don't have that 70% yet, if you, and you still continue to come, you can keep bumping up that mark. So 70% will be the threshold that I'm looking at for your participation. Anybody have any questions, comments, concerns about that? Okay. All right. So let's move on and let's start with uh, open the day with a clicker question. So just for your for clarification, um, if you answer, if you are here and you answer the clicker questions, you will still get that recorded in iClicker. And that, if you wish, will count toward your final 70% participation mark. So question one. In bioluminescence, the two chemicals involved in light generation are the protein something and the enzyme something else. Is it the protein luciferin and the enzyme luciferase, or melanin and melanocyte? Other way around, is luciferase the protein and luciferin the enzyme, or melanin and anthocyanin, or leukocyte and lactase? I think probably just about everybody has gotten an answer in. Okay, so the answer is A. It's luciferin and luciferase. So the protein is luciferin, and that's the thing that actually does the releasing of the photon of a specific energy level, whereas luciferase is the enzyme, and, and it is the catalyst for this whole reaction. It allows oxygen to enter into the molecule react with the luciferin, which then in turn releases the photon. And you can see this, this is just a review of the diagram we had last time, showing you very clearly luciferin is the protein which emits the photon, luciferase is the enzyme, and what you have here basically is Luciferin, luciferase as the enzyme, it's an enzymatic medium surrounding the luciferin. The oxygen is there as well, the luciferin, luciferase allows the oxygen in. Oxygen reacts with the luciferin, and luciferin releases photon. And then the object, the organism I should say, bioluminesces. 
And if you recall what we were talking about last time, in bioluminescence, we talked about incandescence versus bioluminescence. Incandescence would be the emission of light from heat. Basically, something is heating up so much that you have a glowing sort of reaction. Whereas bioluminescence is cold light. It is sometimes called cold light because it's produced often in the absence of heat. Okay, so let's take a, a another review of bioluminescence. A difference between bioluminescent light and incandescent light, and I think I, again, as usual, just said it, but is that incandescent light production also involves blank production. Vapor production, so there's a vapor or is a gas produced. Uh, production of waves, although you could, okay, that's my, maybe not the best choice. Heat, sound, or radiation. Okay. So in this case, uh, the answer is heat. We just talked about why that is. And the answer for B here that I've put wave would not be a very good answer. If I'm writing this for a test, I would certainly try and refine this question uh, to be a little bit more accurate in the sense that certainly a wave is produced. If you're talking about any kind of production of light, a photon behaves both as a wave or as a particle. So technically, if a photon is being produced, a wave is being produced. So that is a uh, note to self to, <laughs> to write uh, more clear, specific questions here. All right, let's try another one. So the only pigment that Specifically, what we talked about, we mainly talked about the warm-blooded animals. So the only pigment that warm-blooded animals naturally produce is this. So is it thymine? bromine, melanin, phenolphthalein, or estrogen. Okay. In this case, Pretty much everybody got this. It is melanin. Uh, thymine, I, I just, some of these are just elements and things thrown in there uh, for a, a choice of answer. Thymine is a component of DNA. Phenolphthalein, if you remember, is a pH indicator. 
So it's one of those substances. It actually turns a beautiful magenta color for in the presence of acids and turns sort of more clear in the presence of bases. So phenolphthalein is definitely not a naturally produced pigment of animals, although that could be very interesting. So let's talk about melanin just to quickly review. There are definitely many pigments involved with animals and animals' color. We saw a couple of unique ones last time. We talked about birds, specifically an African type of bird called a turaco. And the turaco is, is a rare animal in that it's one of the only animals that includes in it one of its pigments. It incorporates copper into the pigment, which gives it a yellowy, bright yellowy green color which also functions to allow the bird to camouflage better into its greener surroundings. And typically, the more green the area the bird lives in, the more of the tura coverdin, which is the pigment that it produces, and the more green it gets to match its surroundings. So that's just one of many different types of pigments found in animals. But the only ones we can produce, both as, as humans and in the animal kingdom is melanin. Melanin is this group of pigments and there's three main types of melanin. If you remember this from last time, there's eumelanin, thiomelanin, and um, also basically another type of melanin which does not particularly produce colors but is found in the brain. So we'll talk about that in a second. But the eumelanin is the most common type of melanin, giving the black or the brown pigment in our hair, in our eyes, um, coloration to the skin. And thiomelanin is more of a red-yellow pigment. So for instance, it gives red hair, it gives freckles, and a number of those types of characteristics. Just to go over again from last time, the melanin itself is produced in your skin in cells called melanocytes. And if you remember last time, one of the kind of interesting thing is, you, if you're wondering why is it that you know, a certain area of skin is pigmented differently or hyperpigmented or something, it has nothing to do with the amount of melanocytes contained within that patch of skin. What it has to do with is how those melanocytes are stimulated to produce the actual melanin pigment. Now, if you recall, the melanin pigment is a defense mechanism, basically. It's what humans use to protect our skin against exposure to UV light or UV radiation. And when I say radiation here, I'm meaning just radiation, the emission of electromagnetic energy, so UV light. So the skin is kind of a natural detector, and when it feels that it has received too much UV light, it starts producing melanin, kicks that production up to high gear, and then you see sort of sunspots or, or age spots appear on your face, which are melanin, melanin um, kicking in there as a mechanism to protect you from UV uh, radiation. To quickly review those three types of melanins that I was talking about, 
Eumelanin is by far, this is the most common melanin in all humans and most animals that produce melanins. And it's black or brown. Uh, the phyomelanin, and it, I'm pronouncing it phyo, sometimes it's spelt with an A before the E. Phyomelanin is yellow and red. Um, and the neuromelanin is kind of an interesting one we don't understand quite yet, but there are some links with increased neuromelanin production in the brain to neurogenerative diseases such as Parkinson's. Okay. So just to remind you, last time we also talked about albinism, uh, showed some pictures of some albino animals. Basically, albino in this case is meaning um, something that is devoid of pigment, either completely lacking in pigment or has a low level of pigment production. And in terms of albinism, the main mechanism responsible for this is a lack, total lack of or low production of eumelanin. So moving on a little bit from melanin. So we know humans produce melanin. Most of the animals and the creatures we talked about produced melanin. Then last time we started talking about birds and bird feathers and different kind of unique colors in nature like blue, which are actually structural colors as opposed to colors that come from a pigment. Remember the blue structural color in things like bird feathers and in things like the morpho butterfly wings that we saw earlier in the course. These are a function of structure, of structure of the surface that they're on. So basically at the microscopic level, you have a usually very, very sort of corrugated structure, which is reflecting and refracting the light in specific ways, allowing it to selectively reflect back to your eyes those blue, greeny, iridescent colors. And so when I say iridescent, it's like peacock feathers are iridescent. This is what I mean. I mean bluey, green, violet, shiny, almost metallic looking colors. So this leads to this particular question. So I'll start the polling for it in, well, I might as well start the polling now for it. And I'll talk a little bit as you're answering that. So with birds, we were talking about feathers, we were talking about iridescent bird feathers. And one of the properties of iridescence and iridescent bird feathers is chances are there is some sort of emission, there is basically, in terms of the iridescent feathers, these microscopic structural changes that allow for selective reflection also allows for increased selective reflection of UV light. As you know, we do not see UV light. We only see that visible spectrum from 400 to 700 nanometers in terms of different colors. So we can't see any kind of color associated with UV light, but birds can. And if birds have these iridescent feathers, which may make them, looking at one another, able to assess, let's say, the fitness of another bird in terms of mating potential, and a number of different things, this UV perception is important to them. 
And we also know that birds are tetrachromats. They see, they have four color receptors in the eye. So if birds were like this with their feathers, and dinosaurs potentially had feathers, maybe dinosaurs were like this too. Maybe dinosaurs could see or perceive some amount of the UV spectrum. And if that's the case, then if the feathered dinosaurs possessed iridescent, oh my goodness, I just again told you the answer to this one, possessed the iridescent coloring, this may imply that dinosaur vision may have had some sensitivity to which region of the EM spectrum. Okay, so I think we're done that question. So the answer is the UV spectrum. Um, for the reasons that I was just talking about. This is an interesting thing, kind of trying to consider what dinosaur vision may have looked like. And today when we talk about flowers and colors in flowers, we can't talk about that with talking, without talking about animal vision, because those two are completely linked. A flower basically evolves and has color in such a way as to attract a pollinating organism to it. So this is what we're going to see now. So let's take a look at the different ways in which animals see. This is kind of a, it's about a four minute video, just to it recap some of what we've already done and just shows you the different kinds of vision and different kinds of animals, which we want to keep in mind when we're looking at flowers and plants and the different colors that we see there. Did you know that pigeons have better vision than us? Have you ever wondered how animals and birds actually see the world? What do fish see when they look at us? This video will explain all these to the smallest details. Snakes. Vision of snakes differs the most from ours. They sense thermal signatures. Due to the infrared sensitive receptors on their snouts, some snakes can see the radiated heat of warm-blooded mammals. Cows don't see colors as clearly as humans. You've probably never heard about this. They see the world in a red-orange color scheme. Also, cows don't like when someone suddenly approaches them because everything appears much bigger than usual to them. Horses. There is a blind spot where horses can't see at all, directly in front of their faces. This is because of their eye location. Also, horses don't see as many colors as we do. Their world is mostly made up of grays, yellows, and blues. Fish. Fish eyes have ultraviolet receptors and a more spherical lens than we have. They see the world in green, red, and blue colors. Deep sea fish can easily see in the dark. As for sharks, they can't distinguish colors at all, but they see much clearer under the water than we do. Birds. As for birds, they have something similar in their vision. Unlike humans, birds can see ultraviolet light. Thanks to the structure of their eyes, they can focus on certain places. For example, birds of prey such as falcons and eagles can see up to a distance of one and a half kilometers. 
we might just see a field, but a falcon can focus on tiny mouse out there. A pigeon also has a unique vision. They can see all the tiny details. We might just see a road, but a pigeon can distinguish all the smallest cracks in it. Their vision is like a magnifying glass. As for sparrows, they literally look at the world through rose-colored glasses. Sparrows can't distinguish green and blue colors because of the structure of their eyes. Insects. Flies have thousands of individual visual receptors that collectively create a broad field of vision. Also, they see the world in slow motion and can see ultraviolet light. Another insect, a bee, has an unusual vision as well. It's a surprising fact, but bees can't distinguish red color at all. For them, the color red appears to be dark blue. Rats. Rat vision is quite blurry, and they can't see red. They also see the world in slow motion. Each eye moves independently so they can have two images of the world. Cats. Cats don't distinguish red and green shades, and their world is made up of brown, yellow, and blue shades. The cat's field of view is broader than ours, so they can see more on the sides. However, cats can see six times better than us in the dark. Their pupils can expand, adapting to any lighting. Dogs. Dogs can't see red and orange colors, but they clearly see blue and violet, as well as ultraviolet light. Moreover, they are able to differentiate 40 shades of gray. Frogs. Frogs can notice only moving objects. They can literally starve to death in the abundance of food if the food does not move. Frogs can also focus only on certain things, so they don't concentrate on what they don't need. For example, shadows. Chameleons. The eyes of chameleons can rotate in different directions independently, so they have a 360-degree field of vision. They see two images at the same time, one in the front and the other one behind. Have these facts impressed you? Let us know in the comments below. Give this video a thumbs up, and if you're visiting our channel for the first time... Okay. So that leads us directly into colors in flowers, which have not evolved not only to be very beautiful, but to be attention-getting and also as signals to things like bees, things like birds that pollinate them and also ensure the continuation and survival of their species. So you can see in these, in these particular images a lot of very fine details in the color, very light, beautiful purple, but there are also sort of spots, spotted patterns. And we'll be talking about why those spotted patterns happen later on in this lecture, and also why each flower develops these uniquely colored petals. But in terms of color, it is, again, it is not just a beautiful thing, not just an aesthetic thing. It is key to a floral species' survival because it is the mechanism which attracts the pollinators to the flower. The flowers and the pollinators, when I'm saying pollinators, I'm meaning the organisms that, like bees that pollinate the flowers, move the pollen from flower to flower, and basically allow for the continuance of the species. Both flowers and their pollinators, bees and butterflies, have evolved together. They've co-evolved and worked out sort of a color communication system. In terms of flower pigments, the flower pigment can be a result of a number of things. 
In our talks about dyes, we talked about varying the acidity of a dye. And you know as well that the pH of a substance can alter the color of that substance. So typically acids make something more red, bases make something more blue. That's true of flowers. Uh, if, if, it's, if a certain area of them is more acidic or basic, or even if the soil they're growing in is more acidic or basic, like a hydrangea. But the color also comes from mainly the pigments contained within the flower petals. There are basically three main pigments involved in flower coloration, and I hope these should look familiar to you. They are anthocyanins, flavones, and carotenes, all of which are basically the main three components which color leaves. We talked about anthocyanins and flavones and carotenes when we talked about leaves changing colors in the fall. The anthocyanins are the ones usually responsible for that bright red color in leaves. Uh, flavones are a number of different colors, but yellows would be one of them. And carotenes are the yellows and the orange colors. How this, this plays out in flowers is a little bit different. With plants, remember that basically a plant color is typically dictated by the chlorophyll and the chlorophyll structure and how the chlorophyll is distributed in the leaves, also with the abundance of the chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is the green pigment, which gives leaves their green color. So we remember that in fall, the leaves change because the chlorophyll production dips down as the amount of sunlight gets less. So the chlorophyll production dips down, and then things like anthocyanins take a more prominent effect, and you see that red color. In flowers, anthocyanins are always there, they're always prominent, and depending on, and this is kind of a bit like when we talked about color in glass and color in paint. Now these anthocyanins, depending as well on the metals, metal ions present sometimes in the flower petals, can alter the color of how you perceive the anthocyanin. So the same anthocyanin in one flower depending on the metallic ionic uh, presence, could give you blue. In another flower, it would give you red. So let's take a look at that. The exact color is pretty much affected in flower petals by about four things. So what metal ions are present? And in terms of ions, remember an ion is something that has lost or gained an electron to become charged. So if the atom is usually neutral, an electron has been uh, lost, and the atom is now either positive or negative, lost or gained. pH, of course, in the petal plays a role. But something called vacuolar compounds plays a role. So if you remember, sort of, probably, it was probably about grade 9 or 10, you're learning basic components of the cell. We did plant cells, we did animal cells, and the, you were always, you know, label the nucleus and label the vacuoles. Vacuoles are sort of these large pockets, storage pockets. They, also, they form a storage for uh, nutrients for the cell, food storage. Um, they're also for waste storage. 
So a vacuole you can think of as a large pocket, but depending on the vacuoles in each plant cell, what's contained within them, this affects flower color um, of the petals. And the actual shape of the plant cell also affects the color. So I just showed you some pigments. We said there were three anthocyanins, uh, carotenes, and flavones, but we'll narrow it down even further because there's really two that we're concerned about, which are the anthocyanins, and these are our blue-red colors, and the carotenoids, which are the orange-yellow colors. So as we said, these are found in leaves, but the difference in petals is the chlorophylls do not dominate and uh, take all the sort of color providing potential away. An important thing to remember here when you think about which petal is going to be which color, which species of flower, remember that the anthocyanins we're talking about and the carotenoids are basically chemical families. They are groups of chemicals. So with Anthocyanin refers to a family of chemicals. There are many different types of anthocyanins, and each one will have a slightly different color variation. So when we talk about anthocyanins and carotenoids, these are groups. There's many of them, many, many variations. Okay. To remind you of plant versus animal cells, on the left is a plant cell, on the right is an animal cell. Probably the most notable difference between the plant and the animal cells is the presence of a cell wall in the plant cells. Um, the cell wall in the plant cells contains cellulose and makes plants turbid, rigid. Um, animal cells do not have this type of a, of a cell wall. You do not need to, to uh, basically recite all the organelles of the cell. This is just to show you that vacuoles that I mentioned before, those pockets, this is a vacuole in a plant cell. And it's not really showing me very clearly vacuoles before here. They're like vesicles, same thing, vacuoles, these little yellow areas in animal cells. As you can see in plant cells, they're a lot more dominant. So what is contained in those vacuoles can also contribute to giving a specific color to a flower. All right. Let's go back to anthocyanins one more time. Remember I said that you can have a flower which contains an anthocyanin but one flower of one type of species would be blue and the other type is red. This is true. This is, these here are blue corn flowers and a red rose. It is the anthocyanins in both of these that give these their color. So essentially what's happening is the anthocyanins get formed not only in leaves, but in flower petals in the right, num the right sort of amount of, in certain conditions. If anybody remembers the leaves lecture, anthocyanins tend to form in higher sugar conditions. So we have a number of factors that go into the predisposition 
of anthocyanin formation. Here are some common different types of anthocyanins. Again, I do not uh, want you to memorize any of the chemical formula or diagram for these. You can remember the names, that would be a good thing, uh, because we'll be talking about them. However, what is important to notice is we talked about those complex chemical structures being responsible largely for color. So in terms of these chemical structures, you see, again, we have that sort of hydrocarbon ring, and we also have double bonds and single bonds, which also dictate which color is likely to result. So these three common types of anthocyanins, uh, one is called cyanidin, which is a red or pink fig, uh, pigment. Go figure, it's named cyanidin, you think it'd be cyan, but no such luck. Uh, there's pelargonidin, which is kind of like the red, that really deep brick red you see in geraniums. And then there's delphinidin, which is a bluish, more purplish actually, blue anthocyanin pigment. And you can see a picture of all of these here. So you can see the cyanidin has kind of the pinky tinge uh, and the delphinidin has more of that bluish kind of purple tinge and it is incidentally the kind of pigment that you'd see in blueberries. Cyanidin is a pigment that you'd see in apples and pelargonidin is a pigment you'd see in, in strawberries, which is this light kind of orange pigment. It's how do we come to know all of this? Well, actually, cornflowers, which are that beautiful, vibrant blue, which isn't so common in nature, cornflowers were one of the first flowers where these were isolated, these different types of anthocyanins. And initially, because blue is notoriously a hard color to synthesize in nature, people kind of thought that the blue in the cornflower was related to pH. And there is some dependence on pH. However, pH is not the dominant factor which determines the color. The recent results, uh, when sort of really studying very carefully the cornflower suggests basically that the blue cornflower is this mix of pigments, those different types of anthocyanins, and a combination of the conditions, such as the different kind of metal ions existing, that make this beautiful deep blue. It's interesting to think about because it's not a structural color. Remember we talk about animals blue morpho butterflies, iridescent feathers, blue birds, birds which have, you know, dominantly blue coloring. Those are all structural colors. And in a flower, we have a blue being produced as a pigment. We're going to talk about structural colors next time. We're going to get into sort of structural colors, and then we'll get into gems and gemstones. But for now, it's just, it's good to know that there is a blue pigment which exists in nature. And that pigment's name is protocyanin. Protocyanin is this blue pigment 
um, it makes, it's not a blue pigment. It's a pigment which makes corn flowers blue, depending on the other conditions in the petals, and roses, depending on their conditions, red. So here's the, here's the original uh, uh, quote from the original article in Nature, which is a very prominent science journal, probably one of the most, the, one of the most or the most prestigious science journals to be published in. And uh, the biologist studying this said, we believe its blue color arises from a complex of six molecules, each of anthocyanin and flavone with one ferric ion, so like an iron, one ferric iron, one magnesium and two calcium ions. Okay. And that's responsible for the gradient that you see here in these blues to these purples in the center. This uh, slide is best seen with stereoscopic glasses. If you go to a 3D, I think it should probably work. If you have any 3D glasses knocking around from 3D movies, this is a stereoscopic image of the molecule, the proto-cyanin um, molecule. And the stereoscopic what, uh, pair of glasses, what it does is basically takes one image for one eye and one image from the other eye and combines those to give you a three-dimensional depth perception effect. So if you were to look at these with stereoscopic glasses, you could see a three-dimensional structure of the molecule. Here's a good example of, a, of an image description. It's a very good descriptive image description, uh, but do not worry about memorizing it or knowing every single thing that's in it. It's a little bit of overkill there. So moving on then from anthocyanins, we're now going to talk for a moment about carotenoids. And carotenoids are the familiar yellowy orange color that we associate with carrots. And in terms of flowers, uh, the, the analog to carrots and flowers are marigolds. You'll often see these really bright orange, yellowy marigolds. And you can see as well from the pictures that there's quite a variance of hue going from the extremely sort of like pale, paler sat but saturated yellow to orange. And this is the molecule, the pigment, that is responsible for this marigold color. It's a carotenoid and it's called lutein. It may be familiar to you. You may have seen it probably on the drugstore aisle because lutein is, um, you can buy capsules of uh, lutein to take for vision. It's supposedly supposed to help you have better vision. Um, in terms of, of carotenoids, you're always told, eat your carrots, eat your carrots, you'll have sharp eyes. So this is sort of the, the basis of that idea. But you can see it's, it's fine in a, found in a lot of uh, food sources, a lot of um, sort of green and yellowy orange vegetables. Again, lutein is a hydrocarbon. It consists of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. So this has been used as a food dye, it's been used for other purposes, and it's really still one of the really most common vibrant yellow dyes. Uh, it's also a nutritional supplement. 
Well, what about, forget the visible spectrum for now, what about this symbiotic relationship that flowers have with the pollinators, with the organisms that are responsible for, for their survival? How do they use color to communicate? Well, they use color to communicate with these organisms basically through having UV coloration. In terms of evolution, flowers have evolved to have certain patterns. And it's kind of like, almost like a landing, like an airstrip, which directs the bee or whatever insect is pollinating the flower to where the pollen is. It's kind of like a pointer system. It's an ultraviolet detector, basically. And this is the coevolution. This is how the species are changing with response to each other. Flowers produce these UV color maps saying, here's the pollen. And bees and other insects, also some birds, have developed the UV vision to be able to see these treasure maps, essentially. So here's an example of one of these maps. On the left is a flower called a mimulus, or a monkey flower. Uh, this is under natural lighting conditions. And it's yellow with some dots. And we'll get to why those dots are there in a moment. But under UV light, this is kind of a less spectacular example. In a moment, you'll see some really, really nice ones. But you can see the darker part. It's kind of, it kind of looks like a tarmac on a, a runway, sort of. So this is basically to direct whatever organism is pollinating this flower to the source of the nectar. And let's actually look at some, some more interesting examples, some nicer examples, and see how a bee might actually see a flower in UV. Just beyond the violet in the rainbow lies ultraviolet. It's completely invisible to us, but not to certain animals. The invisible world of ultraviolet has many other things to reveal about the life of animals. Alongside the garden that we see, there's an invisible garden, a garden of hidden signs and secret codes, all designed to attract the interest of passing insects. That's because insects can't see our world clearly at all, but they can see ultraviolet. Take the honeybee. Many flowers need bees in order to pollinate. No visits from bees, no pollination, no pollination, no reproduction, so it's actually a matter of survival. And flowers have had to learn to advertise themselves to bees in a way that bees can understand. Because to the bee, this garden looks very different. For the first time, high-definition cameras can give us a bee's view of the garden, revealing the hidden patterns in flowers that are normally invisible to humans. Patterns that to us are completely invisible. Seen in ultraviolet, new markings appear on the flowers, like secret ink. 
The markings are caused by special compounds in the flowers called flavonoids. To the bees, they're like aircraft landing lights, guiding them straight into the nectar and pollen at the heart of the flower. But if there's this ultraviolet world all around us, why can't we see it? The answer lies in the evolution of this. The eye. That's not a human eye. That is, was, a pig's eye, but physiologically very similar to ours. So at the front is this cornea. It's a protective layer. And then, behind it, sorry, I'm cringing too. Behind the protective cornea is the lens. That is what plays such a crucial part in determining what light gets through to our eye. But it's not just about letting light through. It's evolved to be a filter, filtering out ultraviolet light that could, over time, harm our eye. You did a little, we had a little review of the eye. You got to see a sort of semi-live uh, pig lens. Um, but in terms of vision systems, insects actually have multiple lenses in their vision systems. Insects like bees and houseflies, they have compound eyes. So a number of eyes join together to form a single receptor that gives them, they don't see a different picture for each eye like a lot of the early Science Center exhibits would show you TV screens and they'd say, oh, here's an insect's view. Well, it's probably not like that. The insect isn't seeing a million different pictures. Insect sees one picture uh, through a number of different lenses. But the insect does see in UV. Okay. So we know now that uh, the, these flowers that we see petals that we see are UV color maps for birds and bees. An example of that is that same species of flowers I showed you before, which was a mimulus monkey flower. And this is again from Nature, from that prominent scientific journal, showing you these different colors of flowers. And the quote is, the red flowered species of the monkey flower, genus mimulus, is visited exclusively by hummingbirds, whereas its pink sister species is selectively pollinated by bumblebees. Such fastidiousness ensures the reproductive isolation of the two flower species in overlapping habitat ranges. In other words, what it's saying in a very simple way is, we know that hummingbirds and bees pollinate these flowers, and so the flowers have adapted and evolved to display different colors, some which are more appealing to the hummingbird and some which are more appealing to the bee, to ensure both organisms get the nectar, get the pollen, and spread it to the species, ensuring their continued survival. What about these dots that we keep seeing in the flowers? What, what exactly is that a result of? Is that a pigmentation issue? Well, it, I mean, it is to do with pigment, but really the dots that are there are essentially to do with genetics and certain genes in the flower being turned on and being turned off. 
So an aspect of the color patterning we see in flower comes from the genetics of the flower itself. And these dots arise when each of the genes are turned on or each of them are turned off. And basically what happens is by the turning on and the turning off, it's like stimulating a voltage. But instead of a voltage, electricity, you're stimulating pigment production. So where some genes are on, a certain pigment is produced. Where they're off, a different pigment is produced. And here you see a really nice example of a number of different hues of flower petals, many of them showing this genetic dependence of color. The purple ones in the center, those are called candies, candy-striped basic flowers. And the genes, you can see that they have these lines that are radiating outward from the center. And the lines are likely are produced because of a gene being on or off in that area. Orchids as well are really great examples of spotted leopard kind of gene turning on off color displays. Now in this particular collage of flowers, there's one of which is not genetically dependent. Anybody know which, which flower that is here? Yeah, it's pretty, it is the blue one. It is the blue orchid, which is, is just captivating to look at. And it tends to be the best-selling orchid color. But it's actually a dye. Uh, naturally, orchids do not come in this blue-violet kind of color. There are other flowers which have a kind of a purpley color like narcissus or irises, but the orchid itself, the ones you see at the grocery store with the almost day glow colors are a result of, uh, of dye. So I think what we'll do now is take a quick break and continue with genetics afterwards. So it is 9.28. We could come back at So we'll resume now talking about uh, color genetics. But before I go right into the color genetics, um, I know everybody is concerned about the strike. And there are, you've probably seen all over campus, there's a wide range of opinions. Um, I, you know, your opinion is your own. You're entitled to whatever opinion you want, but in terms of this course and strike, um, my goal is to sort of make this as fair as possible to you. And I know a lot of you also have summer plans, you have travel plans, you may plan to take courses in the summer term, uh, you may be graduating. So I'm thinking about ways to sort of mitigate the, the damage to the course. And what I'm thinking right now, I'm just giving you an idea of what I'm kind of, of thinking, is to the exam schedule came out 
It came out and our exam date is given as April 17 for this course. Um, with the strike happening, some exams may be running. What I'm thinking to do, if at all possible, and again I have to check with the department and I have to check with your TAs who have elected to work, is to offer the option for you to write the exam on April 17th if you wish to do that. For those of you, um, for those who aren't attending or don't wish to attend because of the strike, that's absolutely fine. Uh, you will be accommodated afterward. So you'll be able to write the exam after the April 17th period at some point. But in order to continue so we can get all our marks together and hopefully get everything done on time with as little disruption as possible, I'd like to give you the option to write on the 17th. Um, I'll keep you updated with that because recently, I don't know if you've been following the news or following Twitter or at looking at any of your, I know York sends a lot of emails every day, I think. Um, but there's been a ton of Senate meetings. So Senate is a governing body for the university and Senate has met pretty much every day last week. There is a particularly important Senate meeting yesterday where they discussed whether or not um, Senate has the power to close the university and suspend classes. Uh, that motion was voted down. It was voted sort of not enough notice to discuss that kind of thing. So, so far it's not clear whether that will be brought to the table again and whether there'll be a discussion on whether Senate has the power to suspend classes. And of course, after that, that would lead to a vote on whether or not to suspend classes. Um, I can tell you Glendon has suspended all classes, the Glendon campus. Um, so I don't know either way which way this is going to go, but there is a possibility that you should be aware of that classes may be suspended, in which case, until an agreement is reached, everything would be shut down, we'd all have to uh, stop teaching, and then your class would pick up where we left off in however many weeks. So just to just be mindful of that, I will try and continue and give you the option to continue if you wish to do so. Unless something changes, they close the university down, they suspend classes, class will continue. Does anybody have any questions or, because I know it's, it's confusing because you're probably getting information from a lot of different places, yeah. Uh, again, that's really hard to say, but I don't think from the way that Senate meeting went yesterday, um, I think it'll be hard to get the issue of whether Senate has power to do that discussed. So I'm going to think it's probably going to be at least another week before there's even discussion on whether Senator can do this or not. Yeah. No, it's, uh, well, York is, so York is both in, in the, because it's an educational organization. York is a not-for-profit organization, and it's kind of, and it's also not a corporation. So it's both a not-for-profit and a corporate, not a corporation but it's basically financed by the government. It's a, it's a university that's a governmental sort of, ultimately a governmental extension of the government. Government, pretty much. The government may, and that's one good point too, the government may step in 
at some point if the strike continues to go on and ask both parties to come to arbitration and have sort of a binding arbitration by which an agreement is, is just required to be reached. So that may happen, that may happen, but honestly I don't, it doesn't look like either side is talking and so it doesn't look like this strike will end anytime soon, just to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Right, so assignment two. Uh, assignment two, and I apologize for any confusion on Moodle. I don't think I updated the March 9 due date on there. I meant to do that. But I'm suggesting the due date of assignment two, if we try and continue on a regular schedule, that should be March 16th. Uh, you will not, again, you will not be penalized if you do not hand it in on March 16. Because of this strike, um, students, you know, have the right to not come, to not do assignments, to not do exams, to not do tests. So that, that is your right and you can do that and you won't, your grades won't suffer for that. The only thing is, I'd like to give you the option of doing it so you can get the mark back sooner and sort of move on with your life. Yeah, so March 16 for assignment two. Yeah, that's again, that's another good question that I was about to talk about. Um, so I, I'm thinking we probably still will have an assignment three, but it will be a pared down assignment three. And it will probably be something a little bit more fun, and maybe a little bit more creative. Um, I, I'm still a bit undecided on that, but in the meantime, I know your course outline said assignment three would be given to you on March 14. So for now, that is delayed. Um, when we, we'll see how things go with the TAs and when I talk to your TAs who are back, we'll see how we can arrange things to get things marked. Okay. All right. So then, color genetics. So genetics is a really interesting uh, subject and as you saw from the, the previous lecture, there's so much possible now, now that we understand the human genome, basically the structure, the blueprint to human beings and the blueprint to a lot of other animals and organisms as well. As you saw, things like GFP, green fluorescent protein from jellyfish was injected into other animals, creating these glow-in-the-dark creatures, which was not for a cruelty purpose or just some weird crazy science experiment. It's to assist with medical research and to have this glowing dye be used as a tracer to trace pathogens or diseases or different types of development in these organisms. So with genetics, we can trace a lot of things. And genetics, unsurprisingly, plays a huge role in color, in the color of living organisms. This is a sort of a, a table here that's showing you the likelihood of a baby's eye color if parent one and parent two have certain color eyes. So we can, we can calculate this and we can calculate based on the genes uh, we can do something called a Punnett square, which I'll show you later, which essentially tells you the likelihood of combinations 
all the combinations possible from two parents having a certain set of genes. So this relates to back to colors and colors in flowers, uh, because the colors in flowers are basically genes going on and off. And again, although we don't think of flowers as having parents, certainly flowers, uh, if, if two, there are parent organisms for flowers. So if one flower is red, if one flower is yellow of the same species, they could basically reproduce to have a different colored or spotted type of flower. We'll get to that in a minute. But to, to understand that, just curious, how many, what do you think? How many copies of each gene, I'll explain exactly what a gene is in a moment, do we inherit from, from our parents? How many copies of each gene? Okay, is it one, is it two, three, a half a gene or a quarter of a gene? more seconds. Okay. So, good answer. Right answer. The answer is, is two. Um, we, we get a copy of each gene, one from each parent, so we have two genes, basically, two different types of genes. And how they combine exactly, and if one of them is suppressed and one of them is not suppressed, gives us our dominant trait characteristics. So let's look at those characteristics with respect to color. So to understand genes, we have to understand chromosomes. So genes are part of chromosomes. And chromosomes are basically DNA molecules, so chromosomes are contained in each cell of a living organism, and these are the DNA molecules sort of smushed into a neat little packet. They're packaged into these thread-like structures within the nucleus of every cell. So in humans, there's a specific way in which you make a human, basically a blueprint or a fingerprint in terms of which chromosomes go into a human. And for a human, there are 23 standard pairs, 23 pairs of chromosomes that every human has. So that makes a total of 46 chromosomes, with a pair of 23 each. And of these, basically 22 of these are the same in males and females. So the only difference between a male and a female human being in terms of pairs of chromosome is one pair, and that pair is basically the sex chromosome, which is the X or the Y chromosome. Okay, the rest of them, the 22 pairs that are the same in everything, are called autosomes. And the X and Y chromosomes obviously are, di are the ones that are different in males and females. Females have X chromosomes, 
and males have the Y chromosome. So what are genes then if these are what chromosomes are? We've got this DNA molecule packed into a neat package within the nucleus of a cell and the gene is basically these thread-like structures. You can think of it almost like an intestine wrapped around. The genes are these thread-like structures making up the chromosomes. Actually, in terms of a blueprint, you could make it more blueprinty than you. So here's, okay. here's the picture of a chromosome. It is sort of two packets put together, the central region. And if you were to decompose this or detangle it, you would see, you could imagine that you have strands of DNA and those strands which make up, which comprise the chromosomes are our genes. So how do these genes determine color then? Genes do control color in the natural world and they do that through a couple of different mechanisms but also in addition to those mechanisms which we'll talk about genetic flaws so if the gene is damaged or flawed or mutated in some way that also causes color changes and it, it, it basically creates um, congenital defects and things like albinism which is something or a person or a human, human or an animal having uh, a lack of pigment. So an albino animal like we saw before. Here's an actual picture of, well you can think of it as an actual picture of human chromosomes. This is called a karyotype. The karyotype is just a very standard picture of all 23 gene pairs that you find in every single human with the difference being on the 23rd pair, which is the, uh, the sex, sex chromosome characteristics, X and Y. So in each of these chromosome pairs, base pairs, we have genes. In terms of figuring this all out, genes actually, the idea of genes were proposed around 1866 by an Austrian monk named Gregor Mendel. And um, Mendel basically loved, really loved plants. He loved to garden. He was very much, um, monks at that time were often very involved in science. They took detailed observations and sketches of everything that they did. So Mendel was an avid gardener. And he also studied very carefully the characteristics of the plants that he was looking at, specifically pea plants. And it was pea plants and the colors of pea plants that made him, inspired him to figure out how genes worked, which even proposed the idea of genes and this idea that it affects color. So one of the ways that color affects genes is through something that's a central tenet of Mendel's ideas about genes, which is there's, there's, if you get one from each parent, then one will be dominant and one will be recessive. They'll combine in different combinations to produce certain traits. 
So the color is really determined by which dominant and which recessive genes you have. Oops, I see it says of a genie. I will change that. <laughs> okay, so some basic Mendelian uh, genetics are that when an organism reproduces sexually, the offspring get two copies of any particular gene. One from the mother, one from the father. And within each of these genes, there's a certain kind of a variation. The variation are called alleles. And the alleles uh, basically give us this idea of dominant or recessive traits. So a dominant trait is one where the offspring has the, uh, the physical characteristic of that particular allele. If this is not making sense, think about the first slide that I showed you. Blue eyes. Blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes. In terms of how that is actually produced in a chromosome pair, there's basically brown eyes can be several different alleles. So the allele, considering brown, is big B. So B for brown, there's also a little b. So if you have brown eyes, you could be, remember it's a combination of two of these, you could be of type BB or of type big B, little b. I'll show you how that works later. But the B's in this case, the one that's capitalized and the one that's in lowercase, that means dominant, that means recessive, these are the alleles. So before we get to alleles, really, let's talk about recessive versus dominant and what that means a little bit more. Um, basically what happens is, in the case of blue eyes, which tend to be rarer than brown eyes, if you have a recessive gene, only if you get two recessive genes together do they give you the characteristic of that particular allele. So if you had blue eyes, you'd have person with blue eyes will have small b, two recessive genes, blue, blue. So both copies of alleles, in the case of having that recessive trait and having blue eyes is actually a genetically recessive trait, both alleles will be the same. So when both alleles are the same, so two lowercase letters or two uppercase letters, BB or little b, little b, we call this homozygous. And when they're different, like big B, little b, we call this heterozygous. And what is it that we're calling what? Heterozygous and homozygous, these are examples of the genotype. Let's look at some of some genotypes. A good way to figure out genotypes and what you could have, let's say if an organism had particular parents, is to do a Punnett square. And a Punnett square is a simple matrix that allows you to, on one axis, have one sort of contributing organisms, alleles, and on the other, the other or organisms, alleles. And this is called a Punnett square. So in a Punnett square, you have your dominant genes represented by these capital letters, these big Bs, 
and the recessive ones are the lowercase letters. Let's actually look at one. Let's look at one for peas. Since Mendel was looking at pea plants in his garden to figure out about genes, so here's an example of a Punnett square. In this case, we're talking about two different types of peas. So here's a pea that's like a yellow, a yellow pea plant, and this one is a green pea plant. So in this case, the green pea plant, the little y, is the recessive green trait for, at y for yellow, I guess. To be honest, I'm not sure. But, uh, but the y here, uh, so this is the smaller pea plant. This is the recessive pea plant, and this is a dominant pea plant because it's got a capital Y. You combine them to see all the possibilities that breeding these two could give you, and you get big Y, little Y, big Y, little Y, or little Y, little Y, and little Y, little Y. You can do this for all combinations of genes, and obviously depending on what types you have, you'll get different possibilities. It's not so interesting when you do it for peas. It's kind of more interesting when you do it for human beings. And you can think about mother has this, father has this. So for two parents with brown eyes, you can still get a blue-eyed child. If they have a heterozygous genotype, meaning those genotypes are different, so the capital B and the little b, if you combine them, you still have a way to produce, if those two recessive parts of each of the parents' genotypes combine, then you have a recessive blue-eyed child. So this gives us you know, how, how we get color in a lot of situations. This is just a si very simple example of eye color in humans. But in terms of more complex genetics, things like flowers, flower petals, combinations and certain gene organizations and also gene interactions will give you different sort of patterning on particular areas of the flower. To kind of show this, let's take a look at this video. It's about two minutes or so, three minutes. Scientists know how you inherit characteristics from your parents. They're able to calculate probabilities of having a specific trait or getting a genetic disease according to the information they have from the parents and the family history. But how is this possible? To understand how traits pass from one living being to its descendants, we need to go back in time to the 19th century at a man named Gregor Mendel. Mendel was an Austrian monk and biologist who loved to work with plants. By breeding the pea plants he was growing in the monastery's garden, he discovered the principles that rule heredity. In one of the most classic examples, Mendel combined a purebred yellow-seeded plant with a purebred green-seeded plant, and he got only yellow seeds. He called the yellow color trait the dominant one, because it was expressed in all the new seeds. Then he let the new yellow-seeded hybrid plants self-fertilize, and in this second generation he got both yellow and green seeds, which meant that the green trait had been hidden by the dominant yellow. He called this hidden trait the recessive trait. From those results, Mendel inferred that each trait depends on a pair of factors one of them coming from the mother and the other from the father. Now we know that these factors are called alleles and represent the different variations of the gene. 
Depending on which type of allele Mendel found in each seed, we can have what we call a homozygous bed, where both alleles are identical, and what we call a heterozygous bed, when the two alleles are different. This combination of alleles is known as genotype, and its result, being yellow or green, is called phenotype. To clearly visualize how alleles are distributed amongst descendants, we can use a diagram called the Punnett square. You just place the different alleles on both axes, and then you figure out the possible combinations. Let's look at Mendel's keys, for example. Let's write the dominant yellow allele as an uppercase Y, and the recessive green allele as a lowercase Y. The uppercase Y always overpowers his lowercase friend, so the only time you get green babies is if you have two lowercase Ys. In Mendel's first generation, the yellow homozygous P mom will give each P kid a yellow dominant allele, and the green homozygous P dad will give a green recessive allele, so all the P kids will be yellow heterozygous. Then, in the second generation, where the two heterozygous kids marry, their babies could have any of the three possible genotypes, showing the two possible phenotypes in a three-to-one proportion. But even peas have a lot of characteristics. For example, besides being yellow or green, peas may be round or wrinkled. So we could have all these possible combinations. Round yellow peas, round green peas, wrinkled yellow peas, and wrinkled green peas. To calculate the proportions for each genotype and phenotype, we can use a Punnett square, too. Of course, this will make it a little more complex. And lots of things are more complicated than peas, like, say, people. These days, scientists know a lot more about genetics and heredity, and there are many other ways in which some characteristics are inherited, but it all started with Mendel and his peas. So hopefully that's a little bit of a, of a clear demonstration of what the Punnett squares do and how heredity was worked out. Um, so now we'll take a look at some different characteristics in different animals and what kind of colors they produce and especially what kind of colors they produce in flowers since we were talking about flowers today. But before we look at that, just a note is it's reality. And anytime you get reality, reality is always way more complicated than you'd like it to be and certainly way more complicated than a concept. So genetic combinations are not always clear-cut. They get quite messy, in fact. Uh, it's not as simple as just linearly combining dominant or recessive gene combinations. Some genes can be suppressed, some genes can mutate, and sometimes organisms can even pick up an extra gene. So how does this all relate to color? Well, it relates to color because we'll talk about the different situations and what kinds of colors those produce. So in terms of different situations of how genetic colors aren't clear-cut, we have something called co-dominance or incomplete dominance. As the name suggests, the co-dominance is when you may have a dominant sort of an allele that's supposed to be dominant and an allele that's supposed to be recessive, but they don't exactly follow their intended roles. They are codependent and they both have equal influence. You also have cases of incomplete dominance where the allele that is supposed to be dominant doesn't actually dominate. So, and sometimes you get from this a mixing of colors instead of one homogeneous color just being present. In the case of incomplete dominance, the one gene isn't dominance over the other and the colors blend together to create a kind of a composite color. 
And this is shown in the example I mentioned earlier. So let's say you had a red flower and a white flower. Let's say you had snapdragons. If you put them together, and I've put multiplied by here to indicate multiplied matrix to have like a Punnett squares to show you the possibilities of those. So given you have incomplete dominance here, what you're going to get is a pink flower. And this is what it looks like. We're not going to get into the specifics of genetics in terms of gametes and the notation of all of this. But what you do need to know is situations can arise where it's not straightforward. And that's where we come up with a lot of some of the most beautiful colors in nature, which is this incomplete dominant dominance trait, which mixes colors like pink. And this happens quite a lot with, uh, with snapdragons. So here's a red snapdragon, white snapdragon makes a very delicate looking pink snapdragon. Same thing, again here's a sort of more explicit illustration of what happens when you have different kind colors of snapdragons. So basically you have the alleles and the genotypes, capital R, big R, big R, little r, little r, big r, little r. And then combining all of these, these are the kinds of colors that you can get. You have going from the red spectrum through pink to white. Okay, so that's this basic incomplete dominance. What about codominance? So with codominance, you have some interesting effects going on there too. We talked about flower petals, and we talked about how they have dots, or they're dotted or spotted or patterns. You can get that kind of the same effect with codominance as well. So, for instance, in chickens and cats, if you have little patches, sometimes you have little spots of different colors on the offspring. That has to do with the phenomenon of codominance. What's happening is, because the two genes that are mixing are both dominant, they both want to basically reign supreme, and so they appear at different locations in the organism itself. So let's say you had a genotype that's a dominant homozygous genotype of a black chicken, BB. And then you mix it with a white chicken, which is again a dominant uh, genotype, capital WW. What you end up getting, and this is just an example because certainly you'll get different things in each case, but this would give you something like a spotted black and white chicken with black and white dots all over different parts of its body. Because the black and the white genes are both dominant and they're fighting for dominance, so they claim certain areas, if you want to think of it that way. So what do you think? Do genes, do they interact with each other?
Okay. All right. So we stop that now. And um, yes, genes do interact with each other. And that's not terribly surprising. But of course, gene interaction gives us yet another diverse set of color properties in organisms. An example of this, well, an example of this could be things like a calico cat. So is that gene interaction? Well, yes, partially it is. So in many situations, you get several genes interacting, and then you also have mutations and external factors that affect it. But the interaction of the genes themselves will produce an array of interesting um, color patterns. This is showing you some red pigment mutations in a cat. I'm not going to go deeply into this, but once you see the slide by yourself, you can take a look at this. If you're a uh, cat aficionado, um, you'll probably be able to take this information if you have a cat and, and extrapolate on the sort of genetic origins of your own cat. But let's move on and look for a second. We'll, keep, we'll stay with cats and uh, look about at how all of these different mechanisms that we talked about could do something like affect a cat's coat color. So without any of, this, any of this genetic influence, white is the basic color of cats. Achromatic color would be white. When you have other genes in the mix, which you often always do, the colors are produced by the varieties of genes, how they combine, whether they mutate, and whether they have any of these sort of clashes that we discussed before. One particular case of, of cat is interesting, which is the calico cat or the tricolor cat. They're kind of like those tabby cats that are orangey, yellow, a little bit of brown, sometimes a little bit of black. But actually, those cats are usually females. And that actually has to do with, again, this idea of chromosomes, how they're inherited, which genes are present. Let's see why that is. So remember when we talked about colorblindness, we talked about how males often tend to be more red-green colorblind than females. And again, this is a matter of the fact that the chromosome, the X chromosome, which is the sex chromosome, that carries the proper red-green vision perception. So males are less likely to have that coded into, into sort of their systems. Okay. So in cats, it's the same kind of thing. That gene that produces this red-orange color is carried on the X chromosome. And we're going to call that color O for orange. And basically what's happening is this gene is affecting the melanins in the cat. So we talked about eumelanins and pheomelanins. And what's happening is this gene is making the pheomelanins produce more and, and basically replace the eumelanins. 
So the cat is becoming more ready orange. So males, since they can only get one copy of the orange gene, since they have a Y chromosome, uh, this produces this striped orange color. So they can often only become the male cats of the tabby cat variety or tend, tend to be striped and they tend to be orange and white. So basically what's happening here is you have an orange cat or a white cat. The capital O with the Y, when I put Y there, it just means whatever chromosome the male inherited is going to produce an orange cat or a small O, which would be a recessive white sort of gene, would be no orange color, would be the stripes of the white area. So because the females have these two X chromosomes, they can potentially get to be this capital O, small O genotype. And when we get this OO genotype, it's not just an orange cat. It's that spotted variety tabby cat that you're so used to seeing. It's one of the most sort of common and beloved cats. Um, what's happening though is a combination is resulting in gene interaction. And this is also known as epistasis. So you get with the interaction of genes, white, orange, black, brown, and other colors displayed. And here are the genotypes relating to the colors you see in each of the cats. So you've got your dominant genotype, the red cat, uh, tortoiseshell cat, and then you also have the OO for the non-orange fur, lots of white. There's an example of Often in these kinds of cats as well, one of the X chromosomes is being suppressed, and this is another thing that can happen with genes, another thing that will affect color. So this is called X inactivation. So basically only one of the X genes, remember you get two. If you're a female, you have XX, you get one from your father, one from your mother, basically. And one of these is suppressed and will basically produce patchwork of color. So this is where you get these kind of nice stripe colorations in a cat where you have X inactivation. So as I said, mainly, mainly these are female cats that are these tabby cats and sort of tortoise shell cats. Um, there can be male tricolor cats, but that is a result of something I mentioned earlier. It's the kind of inheriting of, almost by accident, it's not by design, the inheriting of an extra chromosome. So there's another genotype, and males will often, the ones that you see, male cats of this variety, it's because they've inherited an extra X chromosome. So the genotype is XXY. So technically, they're still considered male but they have this extra X chromosome and they have the Y chromosome and that allows them to have these kinds of color. So it's not really very clear, um, but this, hopefully this will clear it up a little bit. Hello, I'm David Niski and you're watching the Today I Found Out YouTube channel. In the video today, we're looking at why it is that you'll almost never find a male calico cat. Let's get started.
While any breed of cat can be born with calico fur, the vast majority of these cats are female, with only about 1 in 3,000 calico cats born male, according to the Humane Society. So why are most calico cats female? As you may or may not be aware, females have two X chromosomes, meaning that they can only pass down an X chromosome to their offspring. Males, on the other hand, have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. This allows them to pass down either an X chromosome or a Y chromosome to their offspring, determining the genetic gender. Thus, a female receives an X chromosome from both of her parents, while a male receives an X chromosome from his mother and a Y chromosome from his father. This is true for both humans and cats, along with many other animals. Why is this so important to the topic at hand? Because in cats, the X chromosome determines most of the fur color, with the potential exception of white. A male offspring only receives an X chromosome from his mother, so that alone determines his fur color. But females receive an X chromosome from both the mother and the father. Each cell only needs one X chromosome, so early on when the feline embryo is developing, one of the two gets shut off, with the inactive one supercoiling into something called a bar body. The important thing here is that the same X chromosome does not inactivate for each cell. One cell may shut off the X chromosome from the mother while leaving the chromosome from the father. That cell then creates more cells, each of which will use the father's X chromosome to determine the fur color. Likewise, another cell may silence the X chromosome from the father and instead use the chromosome from the mother. So for instance, if the female offspring receives the chromosome for black fur from both of its parents, she'll have black fur. In the case of calico cats, the same process occurs. However, the offspring receives the chromosome for, for instance, black fur from one parent and orange fur from the other. One cell inactivates the chromosome for black fur, resulting in orange fur. Other cells use the chromosome for black fur instead. In both cases, these cells are replicated and the inactivated chromosome will always stay inactive. These two colors then combine on the cat's fur to create the orange and black patches of fur. If the cat only has these two colors, it's known as a tortoiseshell cat. The tricolor calico coloring with white happens due to a gene unrelated to the X and Y chromosomes. This results in piebalding where skin and fur that would normally be pigmented lacks pigmentation, resulting in a white color. So if a cat needs two X chromosomes in order for its fur to be calico, how do male calico cats exist at all? A male cat can have a tricolored fur if he inherits an extra X chromosome, making his genetic makeup XXY. In humans, this condition is known as Klinefelter syndrome, which is surprisingly common in about one to two out of every 1,000 live male purse, with many who have this condition remaining ignorant of it. In humans, as with cats, the individual in question is usually considered genetically male despite having two X chromosomes. Besides potential other health issues, the extra X chromosome almost always causes male calico or tortoiseshell cats to be sterile. In the exceptionally rare cases where the male is not sterile, about 1 in 1,000 of the already rare 1 in 3,000 male calico cats, attempting to breed him with a female calico or tortoiseshell will not produce tortoiseshell or calico kittens at a higher than normal rate, nor would he be more likely to produce male calico or tortoiseshell kittens, as he would almost always only pass on his Y chromosome to the male offspring, excepting potentially in the, once again, exceptionally rare XXY cat. For this reason, and potentially other health problems with the cat, even when these rare fertile male calico or tortoiseshell cats do pop up, they are almost never used for breeders as there are simply no advantages and some disadvantages to using them over more virile felines. So thanks for watching this video. If you liked it, please click that like button below and consider sharing it with anyone you think might be interested. is uh, all you wanted to know about calico cats. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. And certainly, again, because of the sex characteristics that certain characteristics are carried on different, uh, different ones of the sex cells, the gender of the organism will often play a difference with color pr preferences 
And for instance, that's why you have in birds, typically the males are being brighter. Their color pigments are carried on the Y chromosome, and the, the birds are typically, for instance, cardinals, typically redder, typically brighter, to perform sort of mating displays for the females. Okay. Last time we talked uh, about albinos. This is also called hypopigmentation or albinism. And this is actually a genetic disorder. It's a congenital defect that leads to sort of achromatic, an achromatic organism or a color, no color or low production of melanin in an organism. So there's no color then in their hair, in the eyes, and in the skin. This is actually genetically based, and again, it's no surprise to find out this is a genetic characteristic that we can trace through genes and through chromosomes. And basically, it's a recessive characteristic. And albinism, it's kind of interesting because it's recessive, but if you had, say, two albino parents, you will not necessarily produce an albino child. And so you'd have to do the Punnett square and see exactly all your combinations as to how that would come about. But that will show you there that, uh, again, the genes play a key role in determining color of an organism or lack of color of an organism. So there are a couple of sites that you can take a look at if you are interested in today's topics. There's another one on the genetics of horse colors. And then this is a nice site. Again, it has a little bit more advanced material. But if you are unclear on any of the concepts, take a look at this link, which gives you a nice overview of genetics. And um, look at the cats, look at the horses, and I think that's about it. Next week, instead of, of doing uh, colors in living organisms, we've exhausted that topic for now. We're going to go into color in non-living organisms in minerals and gemstones. So have a really good weekend.